So I appreciate very much that gracious introduction from your wonderful pastor. And I'm so impressed at him and at you that he's got the faith in you to believe you can listen to me on a Sunday morning. <laughs> it says a lot for him, and it says an awful lot for you. So here's what I want to tell you. I believe all those beautiful words you sang. I believe them all. I hope you believe them too. And the question is, what do we do when the bad stuff comes? What do we do with those beautiful words when the sorrow of our life hits us and we're heartbroken? Then what do we do? That's a problem of evil, you might say. Now, here's the thing you got to know. I'm not going to solve the problem of evil for you in a few minutes on Sunday morning. But I'm going to get us started thinking about it and tonight in my lecture, I'm going to see if I can bring it home. So between the two lectures, I'm going to see if I can give you enough to have some idea of what the great minds in the history of our faith have had to say about this. We are a community. We cut cross time. We cut cross cultures. And the great answers to the great questions come from the expertise of our whole community, which belongs to all of us. So I'm not telling you this morning what I think. I'm telling you what I've learned from the great minds who've gone before, who've also believed these beautiful words. So I want to start, you might say, I wanna, want you to focus on this. The psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. OK. And then the dog dies and your child gets leukemia, and the tornado takes out your house. I mean, you know, you don't need me to tell you the list. And now what? So now is scripture not true or what? So I'm going to start thinking about the problem of evil by telling you a lot of stuff having to do with that verse in the Psalms. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So I'm going to talk about this morning is the desires of your heart. So here we go. The problem of evil, as philosophers understand it, is raised by the existence of suffering in the world. Can it be that a world which has such suffering in it is also governed by an omniscient, omnipotent, perfectly good God, as Christians believe? The theodicy is one way to answer that question. Theodicy says, yes, that makes sense, and here's how it makes sense. Theodicy is an attempt to show that there is, as philosophers say, a morally sufficient reason for God to allow all the suffering that there is. In the history of Christian thought, a lot of effort has been spent on constructing those theodicies, and an equal amount of effort has been spent by people who want to attack them. Now, when people propose theodicies or when they attack theodicies, they tend to do the same thing. They tend to think about what would conduce to your flourishing, your well-being, your being what you yourself want to be? What would conduce to that? And then Christians try to find a way to show that suffering will get you to that flourishing. And the atheistic attackers try to show that it doesn't, it won't, and the whole thing doesn't make sense. What I want to do today in this lecture is show that there's something wrong both with these ways of uh, approaching the problem of suffering and with the attacks on theodicy, 
when there's something wrong with them, when they focus just on your flourishing. Suffering's not just about flourishing, and the way to understand God's response to suffering is also not just about flourishing. So I want to show you what else we have to think about. What else we have to think about is the desires of the heart. So that's what the psalmist says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I hope that little guy gets his too, whatever they might be. Okay. See, what, what is a desire of your heart? I mean, we all have some idea what the psalmist is, is promising. Some abstract theological good that you don't care about is not the desire of your heart. You have desires of your heart, and suffering arises when you lose them or when you fail to get them. I don't know how to explain in philosopher's terms what a desire of the heart is, but I know that we all have some idea about it because we use expressions related to it all the time. We say a person is heartsick because he's lost the desires of his heart. He's filled with heartache because his heart's desires kept from him. He loses heart because something he put his heart into is taken from him. It would have been different for him if he wanted it only half-heartedly, but since it was what he had at heart, he's going to be heart sore a long time over the loss of it unless he has a change of heart about it and so on. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. So here's what I want to say as a philosopher. A heart's desire is a particular kind of commitment on a person's part, a commitment to a person or a commitment to a project. It's a commitment to something that matters greatly to her but that isn't an essential part of her flourishing. You can think of our desires as a kind of interconnected web. The desire of a person's heart is a desire that sits near the center of that web. If you lose what you want when your desire is at the center of the web, then the other things you had wanted lose their ability to attract you because you, what you most centrally wanted is gone. The web of desire starts to fall apart when the center doesn't hold. That's why the ordinary things of life, the ordinary good things, food, work, all those things, they fail to draw a person who's lost the desires of her heart. She's heartbroken, we say, and so she has no heart for anything else right now. And think about it this way. Things essential to human flourishing are intrinsically valuable for all human beings. But things that are the desires of your heart are things that have value for you. They have value for a particular person just because she set her heart on them. So you think about the value a child has for her mother. I have a daughter. Maybe you have a daughter, too. I think my daughter is intrinsically valuable. And I hate to tell you this, but I love her more than I love your daughter. <laughs> okay. Now, do I love her more than I love your daughter because I think she has more intrinsic value than your daughter? Well, that's ridiculous, right? My daughter is infinitely valuable for me because I love her so much. That's the way it works. Some things we love because they have value. Some things have value because we love them. That's the way it is with children. Child is infinitely valuable in her mother's eyes because the mother loves that child so much. And in general, a heart's desire has the value it has because of your love for it and not the other way around. I have a philosopher buddy who's a loving father, but still, you know, a philosopher. 
And he was trying to deal gently with his small daughter's childish tantrums. And finally, he said to her with exasperated adult philosopher feeling, he said, look, he said, it's not reasonable to cry about these things. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so presumably, he meant that the things for which his little daughter was crying did not have much value on the scale which measures the intrinsic value of good things essential to human flourishing. And I'm sure he was right. No doubt he was right. But see, there's another scale by which we measure things, and that's the scale which measures the value a thing has for a particular person because of the love she has for it. And that second scale can't be reduced to the first scale. We don't care just about human flourishing. We care about those things that are the desires of our heart. And we suffer when we're denied our heart's desire. So I would say that it's not reasonable to say to a weeping child that it's not reasonable for her to cry about the loss of something she set her heart on. Now, thinkers in various cultures, Stoics, Buddhists, many in the Christian tradition, they've been fiercely committed to the idea that human flourishing is independent of the vicissitudes of fortune that cause heartbreak. For all these thinkers, human flourishing is compatible even with the worst stuff. Human flourishing, I'm going to give you a little list. Human flourishing is compatible with the depredations of other human beings, the torment of pain, disfigurement, the anguish of mental illness, the wretchedness of poverty, the misery of being unwanted, the affliction of pariah status, the brokenness of shame, the death of loved ones, and so on. All the stuff on that list is compatible with your flourishing and having a very meaningful good life, even though any one of those things is sufficient to cause heartbreak. The belief that flourishing is compatible with heartbrokenness is common among reflective people in our culture, too. So consider Jean Vanier. He's very famous for his work with the severely disabled. He has long experience of living with the severely disabled and caring for them. And here's what Jean Vanier says. He says, we can only accept the pain in our own lives if we discover our true self beneath all the masks and realize that if we are broken, we are also more beautiful than we ever dared to suspect. When we realize our brokenness, we do not have to fall into depression. Seeing our own brokenness and beauty allows us to recognize, hidden under the brokenness and self-centeredness of others, their beauty, their value, their sacredness. This discovery is a blessed moment, a moment of grace, and a moment of enlightenment that comes in a meeting with the God of love who reveals to us that we are beloved, and so is everyone else. We can start to live the pain of loss. We can start to accept anguish, because a new love and a new consciousness of self are being given to us. A particularly poignant example of what John Vanier is talking about is given by a guy named John Hull, who wrote a memoir about what it was like for him to go blind. In that memoir, he spends a lot of time telling you how bad it was for him to go blind, how much he hated going blind, and all the suffering caused to him by going blind. But then in this book, 
He also recounts a religious experience he had while he was listening to music in church. As he describes that experience, here's what he says about his blindness. He says, the thought keeps coming back to me. Could there be a strange way in which blindness is a dark paradoxical gift? Does it offer a way of life, a purification, an economy? Is it really like a kind of painful purging through a death? If blindness is a gift, it is not one that I would wish on anybody. But as the whole church and my mind were filled with that wonderful music, I found myself saying, I accept the gift, I accept the gift. I was filled with a profound sense of worship. I felt that I was in the very presence of God, that the giver of the gift had drawn near to me to inspect his handiwork. If I hardly dared approach him, he hardly dared approach me. He had thrown his cloak of darkness around me from a distance and had now drawn near to seek a kind of reassurance from me that everything was all right, that he had not misjudged the situation, that he did not have to stay. It's all right, I was saying to him. There's no need to wait. You can go now. Everything is fine. And everything is fine in the middle of all the worst heartbreak and anguish. Everything is fine in some sense having to do with flourishing on a Christian account of flourishing. Now, here's what I want to be sure you hear. I'm on the side of John Hull. I'm on the side of John Vanier. I have no wish to undercut anything in the moving passages from these men. John Hull's thought, like the thought of Jean Vanier, seems to me to be as true as it is moving. But because things can be fine, in a sense having to do with human flourishing, even in our worst suffering, there are stern-minded thinkers in the world who suppose that a person who's suffering because of the loss of the desires of the heart, they just need to let those desires go. Now, there's something to be said for a stern-minded attitude like that. I mean, we don't expect a parent to give a child everything the child has its heart set on. We know that there are some things the child wants that are bad for the child. The good parent won't give them to the child, and so on. But nonetheless, if we exclude all the cases like that, where you want something that's really bad for you, there's still a lot of cases in which a person's heartbroken in consequence of having set his heart in humanly understandable and entirely appropriate ways on something whose value for him doesn't have to do with his flourishing, something whose value is derivative from his love of it. Even with respect to this restricted class of cases, stern-minded thinkers suppose that as long as your flourishing is preserved, the desires of the heart should just be given up if cleaving to them leads to suffering. We can think about the stern-minded attitude this way. Stern-minded thinkers take human flourishing to be a very great good. If you think of human flourishing as your relationship to God, then that flourishing can seem to be an infinite good, a good too great to be measured in comparison with other goods. 
If God provides that kind of good, the good of relationship with himself for a human person, then here's what the stern-minded think. That ought to be enough for you. A person who doesn't find that good, good enough, on the view of the stern-minded, is like somebody who wins the lottery and then still grouches because he didn't get exactly what he wanted for his birthday. So in effect, see, the stern-minded attitude is unwilling to assign a positive value to anything which isn't essential to human flourishing. Consequently, the stern-minded attitude is at best unwilling to accord any value to the desires of the heart and at worst eager to get rid of those desires themselves. So the stern-minded have a very funny idea of that line from the Psalms, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. First you get rid of the desires of your heart and then you get them, something like that. Crazy idea the stern-minded have. Now, I want to show you that uh, in the history of the Christian tradition, this stern-minded attitude has a kind of powerful set of representatives. They're only part of the story. They're, in my opinion, a minority part of the story, but they're uh, loud and vocal. In the patristic form, you can see this stern-minded attitude vividly in a story from the very influential patristic writer John Cashin. John Cashin tells a story about a monk named Pater Mudas. This guy, Pater Mudas, he wanted to be a monk. He wanted to be admitted to a monastery. And uh, the monks at first didn't want him because he had a little boy with him. He had an eight-year-old son. So here's how Cashin tells this story. In my view, it's a heart-rending and horrible story. And Cashin tells this story with oblivious admiration. So here's the story as Cashin tells it. This is what Cashin says. Pater Mudas's constant perseverance in his request to be admitted to the monastery finally induced the monks to receive him along with his little son, who was eight years old. To test Pater Mudas and to see if he would be more moved by family affection than by the obedience and mortification of Christ, which every monk should prefer, the monks deliberately neglected the child they dressed him in rags. They even subjected the child to cuffs and slaps, which the father saw the poor innocent saw them inflict on the poor innocent for no reason, so that the father never saw his son without the son's cheeks being marked by the signs of tears. Although he saw the child treated like this day after day before his eyes, the father's feelings remained firm and unmoving for the love of Christ. The superior of the monastery decided to test the father's strength of mind still further. One day, when he noticed the child weeping, he pretended to be enraged at the child and he ordered the father to pick up his son and throw him in the Nile River. The father, as if the command had been given him by our Lord, ran and snatched up his son and carried him in his own arms to the riverbank to throw him in. And the deed would have been done had not some of the brethren been stationed in advance to watch the riverbank carefully. As the child was thrown, they caught him, and thus they prevented the command, performed as it was by the father's obedience and devotion, they prevented the command from having any effect. That's Cashin's story of Pater Mudas. Now Cashin plainly prizes Pater Mudas's actions. Well, most of us, I think, I mean, I hope it's true, most of us would find this story chilling 
reprehensible, perfectly horrible. What Cashin admires in Padarmudas is the determination with which Padarmudas tries to stamp out of himself one of the most powerful and natural heart's desires, the desire for your child, in the interest of focusing all his care on spiritual flourishing in love for the Lord. An attitude similar to Cashin's but less appalling can still be found a thousand years later in some texts, but not others, of the work of Teresa of Avila. I should tell you, just in case you get confused, I like Cashin. I mean, I don't think he has everything right, but I like him. I really like Teresa of Avila, but I don't like what she says here. So, writing to her sister nuns, Teresa says this. She says, oh, how desirable is union with God's will. Happy the soul that has reached it. Such a soul will live tranquilly in this life and in the next as well. Nothing in earthly events afflicts it unless it finds itself in some danger of losing God. Neither sickness nor poverty nor death, for the soul sees well that the Lord knows what he's doing better than the soul knows what it's desiring. But alas for us, how few there must be who reach union with God's will in this way. I tell you, sisters, I'm writing this with much pain on seeing myself so far away from union with God's will and all through my own fault and sin. Don't think the matter lies in my being so conformed to the will of God. If my father or brother dies, I wouldn't feel it. I would feel it. Or that if there are trials or sicknesses, I suffer them happily. So here's what she's saying. Here's what she's saying. Not feeling it when your father dies not weeping with grief over his death. In her view, that's a good spiritual condition. And she's not yet willing to attribute it to herself. And she's sad about that. Now here I have to tell you, she's echoing a tradition which finds its prime medieval exemplar in Augustine, an influential great Christian thinker from whom all of us have learned and benefited. Augustine says that at the death of his own beloved mother, by a powerful command of his will, he kept himself from weeping at her funeral. And then he confesses he disgraced himself later in private by weeping copiously at her side. In the same text from which I just quoted, Teresa emphasizes the importance of love of neighbor. But here's what I want to say. It doesn't seem possible to have love of your neighbor if you've got that stern-minded attitude she's trying to find for herself. If you've got that stern-minded attitude in the face of the death of a beloved parent or a neighbor, for example. See, it's the nature of love to desire the good for the beloved and to desire union with the beloved, too. But the desire for the good of the beloved is frustrated if the beloved gets sick or dies. Or if you want to dispute that, here's what you can't get past. The desire for union with the beloved is frustrated when the beloved dies and so is absent. So one way or another, the desires of love are frustrated when the beloved dies. And consequently, there is something bad, something lamentable, something worth crying over, something whose loss brings affliction with it about the death of any person one loves, one's father, one's neighbor. Unmoved tranquility 
at the death of another person is in fact not compatible with the love of that person. And to the extent to which you love another person, then you can't be unmoved when he dies. Teresa's attitude towards her father's death, as she imagines her attitude would be if it were an ideal attitude, that attitude can be usefully contrasted with Bernard of Clairvaux's attitude towards the death of his brother. Bernard says to his religious community, as he tells them about his grief over that death, he says, you, my sons, know how deep my sorrow is, how galling a wound it is. And addressing himself, he says, flow on, flow on, my tears. Let my tears gush forth like fountains. Bernard knows about Augustine. He's thinking about Augustine. He's just not going to follow his example. So reflecting on his own unwillingness to follow Augustine's model, here's what Bernard says. He says, it is but human and necessary that we respond to our friends with feeling, that we be happy in their company, disappointed in their absence. Social relations can't be purposeless. The reluctance to part and the yearning for each other when separated indicate how meaningful our mutual love is when we are together. Now, Bernard is hardly the only figure in the Christian tradition who rejects Cashin's attitude. There's a lot of them. I'm going to skip a bunch of them so we get through a little faster here and we don't tax you too hard. But I want to just show you uh, one more thing on this score about the history of the Christian tradition. Even those thinkers who are trying to accept Cashin's attitude tend to be double-minded about it. So here's the famous Anselm of Canterbury. Here's what he says. He's talking to a nun who was coming to him for advice. And this is what he says to the nun. He says, this world is nothing to you, nothing but crap if you want to be a spouse of God. Don't visit your relatives. They don't need your advice, and you don't need theirs. Let your whole desire be only for God. That's what he says to her. Here's what he says to his own relatives who are coming to visit him. Here's what he says. In coming to me, you have lit a spark. You have blown it into flame. And in this flame, you fused my soul with yours. If you leave me now, our joint soul will be torn apart. It can never again become two. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> it was one thing for her. It was something else for himself. So, so he, uh, he was double-minded about this issue. Now, at this point, you might be thinking to yourself something like this. You might be thinking, yeah, but look, look. Isn't it part of Christian doctrine that God allows the death of any person who dies? Does anybody die when God wills that that person lives? So isn't Teresa right? After all, when a person dies, it's the will of God that that person dies. So in what sense could Teresa or you or anybody be united with God and will if you grieved over the death of your father. How could Teresa be united with God as she wants to be if her will is frustrated in what God's will commands? So that's a good, that's a good point. That's a good point. Now, here's the problem with that point. The point rests on too simple an understanding of God's will. That's where the problem comes. To see why, just assume for a moment 
that Teresa's father is united with God in heaven when he dies. So he dies, he goes straight to God, and is united with him. Then notice that the death of Teresa's father has opposite effects for Teresa and for God. That death unites Teresa's father permanently with God, but for Teresa, it separates her from union with her father, at least for the remainder of Teresa's earthly life. So for this reason, love's desire for union with the beloved can't be fulfilled in the same way for Teresa as for God. If Teresa's will is united with God's will in loving her father, and so desiring union with her father, then Teresa's will is going to be frustrated at the very event, her father's dying, which fulfills God's will with respect to a desire for union. And something analogous can be said about that other desire of love for the good of the beloved. If Teresa desires the good of her father, she can only desire what her own mind sees as that good. But her mind's ability to see the good is limited. So to the extent to which Teresa's will is united with God's will in desiring the good of the beloved, then Teresa's also going to desire for that beloved person things different from what God desires for him. And why? Because Teresa has a very differing ability to see the good for the beloved from God's ability. Or think about that same point this way. If Teresa were tranquil over any affliction that happened to her father, it would be because Teresa thought that by this tranquility, her will would be willing what God's will wills. So in that attitude, here's what she's trying to do. She's trying to accept as good whatever happens to her father on the grounds that God wills it. But that can't be the way God wills it. It's not true that God desires as the good of a beloved person whatever it is that God desires for him. That's not how God's will works. When God desires a good for somebody, he desires it by desiring concrete particular things as good for this person. Now I realize that point might be a little subtle and maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, it all sounds the same, I don't get it. So let me, let me give you an example to help you see it. In China, when China's great ruler Mao Zedong died, there were a lot of groups competing for political power. It wasn't clear what was going to happen. And there was one group competing for power that the Chinese laughed at and called the whatever faction. And here's why they called them the whatever faction. Because this group said, anything Mao said, whatever it was, is true, because Mao said it. And they also said, whatever Mao commanded, whatever it was, is good, because Mao commanded it. So the Chinese called them the whatever faction. In trying to desire whatever happens as good just because God wills it, a person's trying to be part of a whatever faction for God. She's trying to maintain as good anything that happens, whatever it is, just because God wills it. By contrast, by contrast, notice that in his great lament over the death of his brother, Bernard of Clairvaux is willing to affirm both his passionate grief over the loss of his brother and his acceptance of God's allowing that death. Bernard says, Shall I find fault with God's judgment because I feel this pain? He says, I have no wish to repudiate the, degree, the decrees of God. I have no wish to question his judgment. 
So Bernard is grieving over the death as a bad thing, even while he accepts that God's allowing this bad thing is a good thing. If you understand the subtle but very important difference in attitude between Teresa and Bernard on the score, then you're going to be able to understand a very puzzling feature of the book of Job. At the end of the book of Job, God comes to Job's comforters and he rebukes them. He says to the comforters, hey, you didn't say of me the thing that was right the way my servant Job did. Okay, and here's what's really peculiar about that. When the comforters say, here's what they said. They said, God is perfectly good and justified in allowing God, Job to suffer as he does. And what did Job say? Well, here's what Job said. Job said with bitterness that his suffering was bad and God shouldn't have allowed it to happen. So how is it in the story that God says Job is right in what he said and the comforters are wrong in what they said? How is that supposed to work? Okay, like this. The answer... The answer lies in seeing that the comforters took Job's suffering to be good just because, in their view, Job's suffering was willed by God. So those comforters, they were and they wanted to be part of the whatever faction for God. Job was perfectly intransigent, obstinate in refusal to be part of a whatever faction for God in that way. And so on the apparently paradoxical view of God in the book of Job, in opposing God, Job is more allied with God's will than the comforters are. That's why when God comes to adjudicate the controversy at the end of the book of Job, God sides with Job who opposed him. God opposes the comforters who had been trying to be part of the whatever faction for God. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, I'm getting all mixed up here. I'm getting all confused. I can't figure it out. On God's side, opposed to God's side, with them, against them. What are we doing here? Okay, here's a way to think about it. Let me show you how to think about it. The apparent paradox here can be solved by recognizing a distinction between God's antecedent will and his consequent will. It's a fancy uh, set of phrases, but it's simple to understand. God's antecedent will is what God would have willed if everything in the world had been up to just him. God's consequent will is what God really does will, given what the rest of us do and will. So you can understand this distinction if you think about dinner time at your house. What do you want at dinner time at your house? A happy evening meal with the children around the table and everybody enjoying each other. That is your antecedent will. When the two-year-old throws the food on the ground and screams over and over and you send him to his room and he doesn't get any dinner, that's your consequent will. That's what you will, given what he's doing. Okay, all right. God's consequent will is what God in fact wills. It's his will for the greatest good available in the circumstances where some of those circumstances are generated by us. That's the idea. So on this distinction, it's true that whatever happens in the world happens only because God wills it. But that will is God's consequent will. God's consequent will is different from his antecedent will. And many of the things which God wills in the world are not in accordance with his antecedent will. To try to be in accord with God's will by taking as good, as unworthy of sorrow, Everything that happens 
is to confuse God's consequent will with God's antecedent will. It's to accept as intrinsically good even those things that God wills only in his consequent will. What God wills in his consequent will is not something that he might have willed as intrinsically good, can be what is the best available in the circumstances, and that might be just the lesser of two evils, and so therefore still worthy of sorrow. So here's the moral of the story. To accept as good whatever happens on the grounds that it's God's will is a wrong way to try to be united with God's will. You can desire as intrinsically good what your own mind takes to be intrinsically good, or you can try to be part of the whatever faction of God. But only the desire for what your own mind takes to be intrinsically good really is going to be in accordance with God's will. And only a desire of that kind is conducive to union with God too. And so although it appears paradoxical, the closest a human person may be able to come in this life to uniting her will with God's will may, including her, may include her willing things, say that a beloved person not die, which are in fact opposed to God's consequent will. So I'm almost done here. Here's what I want to say. For all these reasons, that stern-minded attitude is to be repudiated. It's a bad position, even from the point of view of an ascetically-minded Christianity. It underlies that repellent story in, in Cashin's work. It's incompatible with love of your neighbor, and it's also incompatible with true love of God as well. There are things worth desiring other than those intrinsically valuable things necessary for human flourishing. And the desire for those things should not be suppressed. In fact, as Cashin's story of Pater Mutis makes plain, the attempt to stamp out the desires of the heart doesn't lead to human excellence. It leads to a kind of inhuman willingness to murder your own child in the service of a confused and reprehensible attempt at self-denial. Human beings are designed by God in such a way that they naturally set their hearts on things in addition to, different from, their flourishing. My daughter, the earrings my grandmother gave me, all those things, the home I grew up in. That's why confining a person's desires just to his own flourishing has something inhuman about it. A person's flourishing, you might say, requires that he care about and seek to have things besides his flourishing. So having a desire for things that aren't essential to your flourishing, that's essential to your flourishing. See? <laughs> Just in case you forgot you were listening to a philosopher. Or here's a, here's a plainer way to put it. Human flourishing really isn't possible in the absence of the desires of the heart where the desires of the heart are for things that don't have to do with your flourishing. So for all these reasons, we can abandon, safely abandon that stern-minded attitude. And it remains the case, therefore, that some justification is needed for suffering that stems from unfulfilled or frustrated desires of the heart. So even if we give ordinary theodicies that focus on flourishing everything they want, there still remains a problem of suffering stemming from the loss of the desires of the heart. And so we have to think about those too when we think about the problem of evil. Now for my part, I think it is possible 
to see how to have a theodicy that does address the desires of the heart as well as flourishing. That is, I think it's true what the psalmist says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not some abstract desires for some abstract good, which you don't happen to have, but the desires of your heart. That's what the psalmist is promising. Even in the middle of the heartbreak of this world, I think that line from the Psalms is true. But it's a, it's a, a job for another lecture to show you how it could be true, and I'll try to give you that lecture this evening. But for now, for now, it's enough to have reflected with you on the nature of the desires of the heart and their importance for human flourishing. And I'm done. Thanks. Thanks. Dear Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in you. And you have promised to give us our heart's desires and it's hard for us to see how you could keep your promise in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our affliction, in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our sin. But we trust you, we believe in you, and we're willing to wait for you. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Keep us in your hand, keep us by your side, till we see you face to face. And all the deepest desire of our heart, which is you, is completely fulfilled in you. In your own name, amen.